Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So, thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Hello, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm pleased this week to welcome Gianfranco Sorrentino, who is the head of Grupo Italiano and two very famous restaurants in New York, Il Gattopardo and The Leopard. And Gianfranco, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Steve. Can you give us a, a short bio of you and your history and, I would say, place in the uh, Italian wine industry in the U.S., which is significant? Yes, I started this job in this industry when I was 14 years old. I went to work in the summer season in Capri as a commie, as a busboy. And uh, I fall in love with this job. I've been working in Italy, all over Italy, in France, in Spain, in uh, Holland, in Germany, in Switzerland. I worked in uh, Japan. And uh, 36 years ago, I moved to the United States. My first job was with the Mickey Mouse at the... Uh, Epcot Center. I like to say <laughs> me and Mickey Mouse are very good friends. Then a year later, I moved to New York. I worked first at a very famous Italian restaurant in Coney Island called Gargiulo, typical American-Italian or Italian-American restaurant. Look like it came out of um, a movie like the Padrino movie restaurant. Anyway. <laughs> um, after that, I moved to Manhattan. And I have to say, after two, three years, I was in New York. I remember I was uh, flying from Italy. I landed in the JF Kennedy Airport and I told myself, oh, I am home. I felt New York is my home. I've been uh, working in other restaurants, the beach, and then in uh, 1990, I opened up my first restaurant in the Museum of Modern Art in the MoMA called the Sette MoMA. And the people ask me, why sev Sette MoMA, Seven MoMA? And I used to give the different answer according with my mood. I used to say that I had the seven wives. I, uh, I used to say that I had the seven <laughs> brothers. I used to say that we had uh, seven partners, et cetera, et cetera. That was my first experience, and that was really great because I had the opportunity to learn a lot, to deal with the people of the caliber of Rockefeller, of the King of Spain, and you name it. Uh, we served all of them. In 2001, exactly a week after the Twin Tower tragedy, I opened up Il Gatto Pardo. I remember we had an article from a famous uh, New York writer, they say, she said, those brave Italian. We were crazy, of course, to open up after a week. But, you know, we believed in New York. We believed in what we were doing. Of course, we tied our belt and we made it. Gatto Pardo every year did a little better than the year before. In uh, 2011, uh, we opened up uh, the Leopard Desartis, which is one of the oldest restaurants in New York City, the famous Café Desartis. And I like to say that it took 100 years for the Desartis to speak Italian. Uh, <laughs> 
Then we in 2000, 2013, we open up a mozzarella vino, which is a casual, I like to say Italian slow casual concept. And actually, uh, we closed, you know, in March, we closed all the restaurants by order of the governor and the, the mozzarella vino is closed, but we took the opportunity to expand the mozzarella vino. As I said, we do believe in New York. We think that now we have to recreate the hospitality industry and we believe so much that we expanding mozzarella vino. We adding 60, 70 seats and once it's ready, we hope to re- open by December 2021, we're going to hire 20 more people of our industry. So let's go New York. Good for you. That's that's wonderful. As I was researching this, I came across a saying, and I'll try and pronounce it in Italian. Se vogliamo che tutta rimanga, come bisogna che tutto cambi. Could you tell us about that? Uh, that says, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, this is a sentence from the book and the movie Il Gatto Pardo, the, the Leopard by Lucchino Visconti, the movie. And it means if you want that everything stay the same, you have to have the courage to change things. This was the same, but the Principe di Salina to his uh, son and daughters saying, if we want to stay in power, we have to make sure that we give the impression that we want to change everything. And as a variation on that is a Chinese thought of, we wish you to live in interesting times. We all live in interesting times now. Obviously, COVID has had a tremendous impact on the on-premise business in general, and uh, I would expect your business in New York as well. Talking about change, how have you adapted to COVID and where do you see that going? So we saw the upcoming, the beginning of March of last year, our business dramatically went south from uh, 250 guests, let's say between lunch and dinner, we went to 190, 40, 20 and zero. Uh, March 17, as per order of the governor, we had to close all the restaurants in New York. We did not provide delivery and uh, pick up because Il Gatto Pardo is in Midtown. We are surrounded by Broadway theaters, MoMAs. We are surrounded by hotels and they were all closed. There is not really residence around Midtown. And also, I have to say, I've never been a fan of the delivery. I don't think you can give the same experience delivering food. I always say, if I prepare a risotto, which is going to be delivered in the 20, 30 minutes, and and then you get home the risotto you put in the microwave or you warm it up which kind of food are you gonna eat so i never been a fan but starting in august when we reopened 17 of august we pay more attention to the delivery the pickup we made a special menu that was easy to transport and we also paid a lot of attention and effort to the packaging i mean we try to have a better packaging that could hold the temperature also we try to find other way to support our business then suddenly they gave us the opportunity to open outdoor uh, and the Gatto Pardo never had uh, outdoor. We built it up 
in a few days a beautiful patio which looks like to be in Rome or in Paris, uh, you know, in those uh, piazza, European piazza. But then going on, we had to learn how to work outside. When it was warm, it was nice, then started to become cold and uh, then became a much worse, they were cold, and we had to add the heating. Of course, the, the, the guidelines changed accordingly with the mood of our politician. Uh, we had to buy winter stuff for the staff because you can imagine staying outside for six, seven hours when it's below zero. So we bought a winter vest, we bought a scarf, we bought hat, we bought gloves. We pay lots of attention to the sanitation. Every day we have to take a temperature of all our staff, make sure that they change masks, gloves, etc. So really we had to change our way to operate. And that's been a very interesting curve. If you ask me for the future, as I said before, I am a positive. I am positive because a city like New York is never going to die. I'm positive that once the vaccine is going to be more available, the people is going to get more comfortable. They're going to go out and the people want to enjoy, want to recover the year that we lost. So we're going to see lots of people going out, having good time, eating outside because then there is nothing more that can change the feeling of being in a good restaurant surrounded by people, hearing the noise of the china, the glassing, seeing the waiters popping up a bottle of champagne, opening a beautiful bottle of wines, and the people enjoying. This kind of relationship can never change, and there is no delivery or pickup that can make it change. In our earlier conversation, you were talking about the challenges specifically to the on-premise industry in New York City and finding help that you can afford. A lot of uh, wait staff and dishwashers and everybody have obviously been out of work for a long time. How are you going to deal with that? Which is very strange because you you think that especially now with a third of the restaurant that they close for good and probably another third that they're going to close because of the economy, you're going to find more help. But in SETA, it's been more difficult for several reasons. Talking with our former employee, they prefer to look for a job around where they live so they don't have to take mass transportation. They prefer to make less money, but to be around there. Most of the people change job because during the pandemic, when we had to close, you know, in our industry, a lot of people could not apply for unemployment. So they had to find another job. So what are we doing as a group Italiano to find the skilled people? What are we doing? We are uh, working a lot with the Culinary Institute and with the, the university. We try to teach the students about Italian cuisine, authentic Italian cuisine. We try to teach them about the Italian products, the Italian wines. And not only that, but we try to teach the Italian way of eating. You know, there is unfortunately uh, these kids that they come out from the Culinary Institute, they are very well prepared. But the American Culinary Institute, they teach a little bit of 
Chinese cuisine, French cuisine, Japanese cuisine, Italian cuisine. So the kids, when they come out, they know a little bit of everything and they feel free because also the American are very innovative. They feel free to mix and match ingredients, products from all over the world, the cooking techniques and culture. So for us, restaurant that we try to provide authentic Italian cuisine is very difficult to have these kids from the Culinary Institute and put them to work right away. My chef tell them in a funny way, they say, okay, you're coming from a good Culinary Institute, you have a thousand of dollars in debts, now that you are here, please forget everything, we start from zero. (laughs) I'm sure that's very uplifting for them. You said something really interesting there, um, the Italian way of eating. Could you elaborate on that? Yes. I think that uh, uh, you have to live in Italy and live in the Italian family and lots of American chefs, thank God, they have been doing that in the meaning they stage in Italy with the best chefs and in the best restaurant. So they understand that it's not only the best ingredient, the best product, but it's also a way to eat. You know, uh, you don't overdo with uh, anything. Uh, you know, the Italian cuisine is very simple. Few ingredients, the best ingredients you can, very simple. You want to test taste each ingredients, very simple cooking techniques, and the most important thing, the freshness of the ingredients. I say always that also we restaurateurs, we have to educate our guests about the Italian product. They cost a little more, but probably you use less and you have better results. They cost a little more, but they are not only delicious, they are also healthy and safe, which is very, very important because lately we all the sickness that we see around, that's due to the different way of uh, growing our vegetable, our uh, animals, you know, and things like that. So let's uh, spend a little more, but let's get good products, safe, healthy, and delicious products. Interesting. I thought you were going to go uh, two points here. One, the amount of sauce, for example, when you think about or gravy, as Americans like to call red sauce, when you have a real authentic uh, bolognese with tagliatelle in Bologna, it's not smothered in it. It's kind of placed on top. That's the delicacy I think you're talking about. And the other point that struck me when I've traveled in Italy, and I use this example as an importer, I had a four-hour lunch with a uh, Brunello di Montalcino producer. None of us spoke any English, but the universal language was wine and food. Oh, yes, you, you're right. You're right. Uh, let me add to everything we said, also the sense of hospitality, you know, because it's very, very important, you know, to eat is not only to feed our body, but it's also a moment to be together, to talk about ourselves, our future, you know, family being together. You know, I've been used to in Italy that uh, we, we used to go everywhere, any hours, et cetera, but Two o'clock and nine o'clock was lunch and the dinner time. 
everybody gets home. My father was home. We had the lunch together. And then we go back to school, do our homework, etc. And the same thing, nine o'clock at night, we have dinner. And then we go out with the friends, etc., etc. And I keep this way also with my home. My son, my daughter are American. But they know that 9.30 or 10 o'clock, because unfortunately we eat very late, is a dinner time. Everybody sits around the table. We open up a nice bottle of wine. My daughter is a 12, but she enjoys good Italian red wine. <laughs> uh, we sit down and uh, it's a moment that we dedicate to ourselves. We talk about the day, the day before, the day after, but we are together. It's also about that, to be together you know, and to change feeling, to exchange feeling. Understood. So there's a TV show airing now called Stanley Tucci in Italy or something like that, which I've been watching. Last night they had the ish, the uh, the one on Bologna. Have you seen that? And um, what impact do you think that's going to have on people's awareness and appreciation of Italian uh, food in America? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me say a funny things about uh, Stanley here. Uh, we've been friends uh, since uh, the big night because I oh, used to... Oh, one of my favorite, favorite movies. <laughs> that movie was uh, chosen by the MoMA as a first uh, director. So once uh, they choose the movie, they screen in a small room upstairs at the MoMA, the old MoMA, and they invite me to see the movie. And I had the, next to me Stanley Tucci, which I didn't know. And then on my right, I had Ruth Raker from the New York Times. And by the way, Ruth Raker, she gave me the worst review I ever saw in my life <laughs> on my restaurant. Anyway, so I was sure sitting plan. with these two people, not knowing them. I saw the movie. I left. I l really enjoyed. A few days after this gentleman came in, I recognized him. I said, I know this gentleman, but I couldn't figure out who was. I sat him at the table and then I said, excuse me, sir. I know you from somewhere. Probably you are in the restaurant industry. I said, no, I am just uh, the actor and director of a big night. So then we became, uh, we became friends. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, his personality is really coming through, but the enjoyment of Italian food is almost palpable. One of the interesting things about that show I found is that they don't talk about wine at all. And my opinion is Italian wine, Italian food kind of are almost inseparable. Yes, uh, no, I agree with you. Uh, I like the fact that he doesn't do the stereotype Italian program, you know, he goes more in the deep, in the culture, in the people, in the producers, you know, in the tradition and the history of Italian food. He should add the very important factor of the wine, because what is a good dinner, Italian dinner or lunch without wines? But we hope in the next three episode is going to talk about wines as well. <laughs> okay. Let's kind of move towards, uh, I've got my first vaccine. I imagine you've had yours. I have to do a follow-up, of course, but we're going to see a resurgence in the restaurant industry. And I think what everybody's saying is that, oh, it's going to be like massive. Everybody's going to come out and go out to eat again, which I do believe is going to happen. Is that going to stick? And are there any other changes that come along with that. I know I've found I tip a lot better now, even when I do takeout. Well, it's going to be busy in the future, of, of course. Of course, because as we say, that the people really want to go out, want to have that kind of relationship and enjoy themselves. 
I hope it's not going to be in that decadent way that they painting like in the 20s, you know, etc. And I hope also that we, restaurateur, we can create a more sustainable restaurant industry. As I said before, the students, they come out from this school with the thousands and thousands of dollars in debts. And the first job that they can get is a minimum wage, you know, uh, because uh, the restaurant is not that we don't want to pay good wage to the, our employee, that they are our family. The problem is that the restaurant, that they work with a, with a very thin margin of profit, very, very thin. As we said before, we have to educate the people that good food costs a little more. And we have to be capable to charge a little more for good food. That being said, also another thing that, uh, you know, I have to say, and I am so sorry about that. Being the president of Gruppo Italiano, I talk with the restaurateur all day long. And lots of restaurants, they closed up for several reasons. So also in the future, they're not going to be so much competition. And I hope that... Uh, People are, will understand that, you know, and will have a more, let's say, respect for the kind of job that we do for the waiters, uh, for the bussers, you know, for the metro D and for the back of the house of the restaurants. Which leads me to the question of Danny Meyer and his attempts to um, take tipping out of the equation and pay his workers more. What are your thoughts on that? I thought the idea was very good to pay them with the salary and then according, because the, the Danny Mayer concept was to pay with the salary according with the, the revenue anyway. So practically he was putting the 20% automatically on the bill and then sharing them on the back of the house and front of the house. Because we have to say also that in the good restaurant, the discrepancy between the salary of front of the house and back of the house is too much. It's not sustainable. Unfortunately, there are several factors that made great restaurateurs like Tom Colicchio and others to get back. Front of the house, they don't want to lose that privilege because, you know, front of the house, they can make easily $100,000 or more. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that you have a tip according with the, the service, they find out that it was an incentive for them to do better and more. So it didn't work out. I don't know if in the future they're going to be more and different way to approach this, uh, this uh, issue, and I hope so anyway. Okay. Coming back to the, the issue of wine, w one of the issues that we in the wine industry face all the time and probably contribute to is we make the appreciation of wine too precious, like there's some special knowledge or club that you're a part of, which is really just the opposite of the philosophy that you have in your restaurants. And, and I think the way a lot of people eat. Now we're in a world where with label recognition technology, there's a world of information available to people by just scanning the label image into Wine Search or Vivino or something like that. Is that going to help democratize wine or is wine going to continue to be this you know special thing? Well, for sure, the technology applied to the label, etc., made my life much more difficult. 
I mean, the, the customer seems that in, with the one click, they know exactly about the wine, where it's from, et cetera, et cetera. So it is a challenge as well for us to create a wine list, which is more challenging, more interesting. And still, I do believe that is a part of the restaurateur and the management to educate. And I'm not saying in an arrogant way, you know, to educate the customer about not only the big brands and the big cab or Merlot, etc., but also those wines that are more uh, difficult to find in the in the market. Like I can talk about the Gagliop, the Pallagrello Nero, the Casa Vecchia, etc. I still believe that is a, a duty of the restaurateur to promote this wine and that's what is going to make the difference among uh, the restaurant you know those wine lists that they're going to be more challenging and more different so this will be also good for those small boutique importer and distributor that they saw their business going down because they mainly work with the restaurants and not with the retailers because their portfolio is made prevalently by wine from a territory, different wine, cult wine, as I like to say anyway. I, w- I was uh, going to speak to the issue of varietals, and one of the challenges I see a lot of facing people facing in, in the U.S. is you fall in love with certain Italian wines. Chiaretto is an example. Grignolino is another one. They're not very popular. They're certainly not very well known, but they're really perfect for certain meals. You know, Chiaretto with pizza and Grignolino. I'm not quite sure what that specifically goes with, but how what, how can wineries who are working with these autochthonous grape varietals um, get more visibility, credibility, awareness? In the U.S., you mean the producers? Yes. Well, the producers and the importers. So, if somebody's importing a green yellow, how do they sell that to somebody like you? Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, let me say that uh, we will see again uh, a business coming back for these, uh, let's say, artisanal producer wines from the territorio. Once the restaurant they started to work at the full speed, anyway, I think for the producer, of course, they have to find a good, reliable, important and distributor and work with them. You know, work with them, and then probably after six, eight months to review what what of uh, their portfolio sell more and sell better. For the importer and distributor, you know, these wines they're going to sell only a mainly in the restaurants. So they have to have a good relationship with the restaurant. They have to have a good uh, relation with the, the people involved in the wine in the restaurant, making sure that, that they teach our staff. At the Gattopardo and the Leopard, at least once a week, we have a wine tasting with the staff. What I do, I invite the distributor. They bring some bottle of wines. And we taste this wine, especially the unknown wine, you know, about the Chianti, Barolo, Brunello, as you said, you know, those are brand name, names that everybody knows, etc. But as we said, with the Grignolino, the Asprino and uh, the Casa Vecchia, we have to sit down and start to educate ourselves and our staff about this wine, about the territory, about the grape, how they are made, how many bottles they make, etc. So we can then educate our guests about this wine. I said before that is a challenge for us 
to make sure that we have a wine list that is interesting and the price point, we can have different wine in all different kinds of price points, you know. And this is part of our job. Well, you had mentioned earlier that uh, the way you structure your wine list in the restaurants is a little bit different. Could you explain that? Well, the, we prefer and we privilege small producers, artisanal producers. Myself, I go, I used to go two, three times a year in Italy and, uh, I love to go and meet uh, new winemakers, especially younger winemakers and see what they're doing. So on our list, we, as I said, we privilege uh, small producer, artisanal producer, wine that they are natural, that can be uh, organic or biodynamic and will mark those wine. And being also a restaurant from the south, because my chef is from the Cilento, I am from Napoli, our cuisine is uh, una cucina campana, uh, we try to privilege also wine from the south. So the core of our uh, wine list is made by wine from the, the south, especially from Campania. One of my favorite regions. Okay, we're coming to the end of it. One of the things I'd like to do is end the session with a question about what's the big takeaway? We've been talking about a lot of things. People are engaged in the podcast. What's the big takeaway they can take away from the conversation we've had today that they can maybe put to use immediately in their business, whether they're a supplier, whether they're a distributor, importer, restaurateur? or anyone else involved in the industry? Some of the things that we talked about, what's most important, do you think? Well, I would like to to give a sense of positivity, the meaning the future. We've been in a year of the pandemic has been terrible. Our industry has been decimated, not only the restaurants, but I saw also the important the distributor and, of course, the producers. All of us, we've been suffering. So I want to give a kind of positivity. So, you know, there is the light at the end of the tunnel. We can see it. And as a friend of mine say, it's not a train, you know, it's the light. So I want to say, you know, until now, the business is, has been bad. Also, restaurant, they didn't string the wine list, but they spend more time to see how they were buying. You know, they were buying only what they need. For sure, all the restaurateurs, they shrink the inventory because we had to save money. But now we started to see little more business. We're going to start to buy more wine. Again, we want to see the, the importer, the distributor to come up with the new wine, a different wine, more interesting wine, not only the Pinot Grigio and the Prosecco. Italy is, is a great nation because so small, but we have so many different wines, you know, and that's what we have to, to push, you know, the difference of our territory and our grip. There is a future in front of us. Let's make sure that is a healthy, strong future for all of us. Wonderful finish. I couldn't have scripted that better. <laughs> this is Steve Ray saying thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast. <laughs>